Jordan, you're a great professional, but tell me you're going to get absolutely rotten tonight, like me. <laughs> Possibly. Oh, Come on, Jordan, go for it, lad. Enjoy yourself. Cheers, hey! So it's another red agenda. There's uh, the radical proposals to overhaul English football to focus on. There's a Merseyside derby to preview as Liverpool look to steady the ship and we'll reflect on five years of Jurgen Klopp. And we'll do it in the company. Simon Hughes, uh, James Pearce and Kiva O'Neill delivering their verdict as always. Right now, we're offering you the opportunity to subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month. You can enjoy all of the great articles on the Reds and so much more, including James and Simon's in-depth look at Jurgen Klopp's first few weeks as Liverpool manager back in 2015. There's insight in there that you just won't find anywhere else. This offer is running for a limited time only, so go to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod to sign up. That's theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod and pay just £1 a month. Right, we promise James's dog won't get involved in this week's Red Agenda. Uh, he has got a cat on site, though, so I'll have to, to, to see whether there's any animal interruptions. Uh, instead, we'll start with Simon first, and we'll focus in on uh, these radical proposals. And they are radical to overhaul English football. So give us the headlines behind this first and how Liverpool are pretty much central to these proposals being put forward, Si. Yeah, it's 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 Liverpool and Manchester United. So John Henry and Joel Glazer are sort of leading leading this charge, and it's certainly not something that's that's happened overnight. I mean, it, it's it's been spoken about for a number of years. You know, it's not necessarily a reaction to the the pandemic, but it it's obviously accelerated the possibility of this happening. And I can understand why people are saying you know there's a bit of opportunism going on, but I think I think the fact that that they have been thinking about this for a long time shows that it runs deeper than just the current situation. So, bottom line is obviously that the EFL are central to the story as well because Rick Parry at the moment, who's the who's running the EFL, is is, is the only person who's spoken about it publicly. It's 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 a very controversial move if it does happen, and I can see both the, the, the positive and the, the negatives around it. I mean. It, I ultimately think there's going to have to be some sort of compromise in its current state. I find it hard to see how the idea will get through, but but basically that the, the Premier League top six to nine clubs will have greater autonomy in the deal in exchange essentially for a big cut of the TV distribution money, you know, as much as 25%, which will be spread right across the, the EFL and potentially, you know, save save a lot of clubs in a moment where they're, they're struggling financially, but not just save them, but allow them to, to build sustainably and have the guarantees of, of income over the, the coming decades. So I suppose the concern is at the top of the game that the, the clubs potentially who uh, the more established ones will be able to, to act according to their own interests if it happens. But equally, you know, it will help clubs at the bottom end of the game have have a, have a brighter future. So I think there are some interesting points in, in the proposal, and I think that there could, you know, the smaller details I think need to be ironed out. Um, I think it's a starting point, and I mean, some people are obviously aghast by the idea behind it, and I can understand why that's happened. But I think it's encouraging that, that at least there's a starting point in the conversation because at the moment it's the only proposal on the table. I don't think the Premier League have have come up with an idea 
I think it's hopefully going to provoke the sort of conversation that's needed to to try and solve some of the problems in football if it's treated in a in a mature way, which obviously we don't always see in football. <laughs> James, what what is the opportunism that Liverpool see here? Be very basic about it. Why perhaps would the finger be pointed from some quarters at Liverpool or Manchester United? Well, I think you know, you're bound to hear a lot of talk about greed and. And power grabs. I think it's you know it, it comes down to money and it comes down to having a, a bigger say in in decision making because I think it has frustrated certainly Liverpool's owners the fact that this there is this rule that you need a fourteen clubs out of the twenty um, when it comes to a vote to, to agree on any any changes and I think you know I think they've always felt that the bigger clubs should have a bigger say that follows in their heads that then that means you know a bigger slice of the pie as well i remember you know years back now you know ian air causing a stink when he came out and said that um you know no one in kuala lumpur is is watching bolton wanderers on tv you know and it, and it was it was you know referring to the fact that that tv revenues are pretty evenly distributed <laughs> um so yeah do you know what, I, you know reading through all the proposals i think you know, it's it's easy to just you know the knee jerk reaction is you know no, it's you know it's absolutely ridiculous. I think do you know what there's there's some good stuff in there, but there's also some stuff that really concerns me. I think reducing it from from twenty to eighteen, I can you know when you look at how crowded the the schedule is, even even abolishing the league cup, I'm not you know I'm not massively against that. I just think the league cup has been devalued to the point where. You know, it's almost like for a lot of teams, almost a relief just to get knocked out of it and and, and be done with it. You know, as Simon said, that you know the 25% Premier League annual revenue being handed to the EFL would certainly help to try and kind of address the huge gulf in the haves and the have-nots at the moment. You know, scrapping parachute payments, I think, would be a a good thing. I don't think that that's particularly healthy for for the pyramid. But yeah, I don't I don't like the idea of 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 the big six effectively being able to ride roughshod over the rest. I think what makes the Premier League special is and why it is so watched all around the world is it's so competitive. Um, and I think there's a real danger that you lose that if if suddenly um, the, the big six have... Have a, have a much bigger say in, in the decision-making process. You sound a bit like yourself. Akiva, it'd be interesting to hear from you on this one. There's, there's various elements of this that I'm, I'm not particularly bothered about. So the League Cup, Community Shield. Um, but then you talk about numbers of teams in the Premier League and you think this is going a bit deeper. Are there certain areas that you think fans or clubs at large will not be bothered about and others that there will be an absolute distinct brick wall up against? I mean, the rescue fund's vital. That, that's got to happen either way, I think. We, we need to save English football at the minute, you know. It's, it's looking quite dire for a lot of clubs, so I think that needs to happen either way. I, I think the Premier League going to 18 clubs would obviously be more difficult for teams then to get in wouldn't it and then as James mentioned there you know for for I think it was the nine clubs given special voting rights wasn't it um, just based on how long they've been in the Premier League um, I think that's very unfair and then gives it would obviously give Liverpool and and the likes you know more power and then they're you know these clubs are then very unlikely to ever drop out you'd think and then what so there's only nine spaces up for grabs really um, I do quite like the idea of a, the 16th place side going into like a, a playoff which is what, what happens in the Bundesliga and it's always um, interesting watching 
but then you you've missed out then on on the league cup drama and the community shield being abolished i mean it's not like the the biggest thing we'd miss i mean we've lost the past couple of years haven't we so i always felt like that could they could do something better there in terms of just re revamping it and calling it like this the english super cup and just having it a bit more like you know something that people want to win instead of just this game that you play and you're kind of not too bothered if you win or lose but i think the, the vital thing you sort of taken from it is you know the money that needs to needs to filter down the leagues now and indeed you know to grassroots level football because you know, from the very bottom um, of football, especially at the minute, you know, looks like locally we're going into another lockdown. It's it's going to be so hard for these little clubs to sort of come out of this. There'll be, you know, there'll be clubs that are closing the doors and will never open again. And that's a that's a tragedy. You know, you look what happened with Berry, and, you know, that's that's re- real sadness there um, for, you know, towns that, that and villages even that depend on the football teams just to sort of give them that, you know, local economy. And then maybe we'll see less of them and I think you know that that's the main thing that I've I've taken from it is that the money needs to come and it needs to be as they've sort of proposed made available um, immediately. Si it would be very easy to look at this from a selfish perspective if you're a Liverpool fan you think well we're a big team and you know it just strengthens us even more but I I suppose looking at that landscape fans have got to make sure they're they're not selfish in in their perception of what's going on (laughs) good luck with that (laughs) yeah yeah I mean I've I, I covered quite a lot of lower league football and started off my journalistic career writing about non league football so you know, I do have an interest in in that area. Like last season, I spent the weekend with with Accrington Stanley, and you know they're one of the one of the really sort of impoverished clubs in in the football league. I think they've, they've certainly got the lowest budget in in League One, uh, and I managed to get promotion out of out of League Two a few years ago, despite having I think the second lowest budget in the league. So I've got a, a reasonable understanding of how how things are, and I remember I wrote an article. Um, in February, I was just reading reading it back this morning about the the, the increasing gap between between uh, the championship and League One, and people sort of talk a lot about the gap between the Premier League and the Championship being enormous. But if you actually look at the data and the, the figures and the, the the finance behind it, the gap between uh, the Championship and League One is is bigger than anybody really realizes over the last couple of seasons. The same teams have been going up and down, up and down, up and down, promotions and relegations year after year because the the, the gap is so vast, really. And in February, I, I, I said clearly, obviously, something needs to be addressed to, to to stop this gap widening ever more. The Championship is is awash with money, clubs taking bigger risks than ever to try and get into the Premier League. And as I said, I, I do think the elements of this proposal make sense, but not all of the elements. And um. Listening to Rick Parry, you know, talk, talk about it, I think he realises that not everything is going to be, you know, to every everybody's taste and that that is going to have to be some compromise in each end. But I've got to be honest, I think the people don't realise just how close to the cliff edge football is at the moment. There's, there seems to be this assumption that it will manage to reform in a different way, you know, after, after the pandemic or in the coming years. But... These clubs at any level of football at the moment, uh, the, the the profit margins are so narrow that there isn't that safety net when something like this happens. So I can't see how football clubs outside, certainly outside the championship, can continue playing matches while there's no spectators. It, it, it's it's going to be impossible. And with 
it's it's not just a a football issue. It's a, it's a government issue because, as Kiva said, there you know we're facing several months potentially of lockdown. So something will have to happen. Otherwise, a lot of football clubs are going to find themselves in an awful position. Not not going to just going to be talking about it like oh, there's warnings. It's going to be happening right in front of our eyes. So I think it's a good thing that there's something at least to provoke the conversation. I don't think the conversation should be shut down because there's elements that people don't like. I think that there's going to have to be compromise and, and an understanding that it's not just about your club, it's about it's about the whole game. I, I personally think that it, it's not going to be possible to give the clubs at the top end of the game all of the power that they want. But I do think that the Premier League needs some reform as well. I think the Premier League's needed reform for for quite a while now. I think the model that was that suited 25 years ago doesn't necessarily have a positive impact that it does today. So there need there needs to be proper consideration for this and and not just ruled out of hand because there's elements of the the, the proposal that you don't like. But yeah, I mean, football doesn't tend to be particularly patient with with radical ideas. That's a story that's got a long way to run. You can read uh, more on it on The Athletic right now on Adam Crafton's piece, uh, which is called Explains United, Liverpool and Parry Spark Nuclear War in English Football. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Athletic, The Next Big Thing. Yeah, there's nothing better than I don't think as a fan to see in a lad coming on for his debut and I love the way they can't even fill the shirt properly. It's an absolutely stunning goal! This season we'll be drawing on the knowledge of our incredible football writers to give you the ultimate briefing on the stars of tomorrow. You know, people always question, you know, what what is the plan for these young players? Our experts know these players better than anyone else. That's the thing with him. I mean, when he, he made his debut with the first team, I, I sort of said to you before the game, I have no worry about you. You know, I just, I know uh, how confident you are in your own ability, but he hasn't got that overconfidence. It all starts on September the 28th with a full profile of Liverpool's Billy Cometio. Footballers now are getting so much criticism from all sections of society. They can't deal with it from the players they're meant to be playing with. They haven't got much of a chance, really. From what I hear, you know, he's, he's got a big personality and somebody who really believes in himself. That's the next big thing. The latest podcast from The Athletic. OK, let's take a look at five years of uh, Jurgen Klopp. He arrived at Liverpool on October the 8th, uh, 2015. Five years on, he's won the Champions League, Premier League, uh, a Club World Cup and a Super Cup. Liverpool needed someone special. How much has he exceeded your expectations, James, within five years? Oh, massively. Yeah, I think um, when uh, me, myself, Simon and Kiva were putting together the... Uh, the kind of the oral history of his first week to 10 days in the job last week. You know, I was thinking about being stood outside the, the Hope Street Hotel on the, the afternoon when his the people carrier he was in swung around the corner and there was hundreds of fans out, outside the hotel. It was like it was like Liverpool had just scored when his, his car came around the corner and you, you just thought, you know, how, how on earth does anyone live up to this kind of billing? And it was, you know, it was the same when, when he addressed the media in that, in a memorable first press conference at Anfield the the following morning and you know gave such an unbelievable performance that you know I think everyone it just whetted everyone's appetite for what was to come but you still felt you know, this is still a huge job there was such a such a gulf between expectation and reality for Liverpool in terms of just how far they dropped as a as a force in probably the 18 months before he came in from you know never really getting over the disappointment of 
just missing out on the title in 2013-14. And, 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 and yeah, I've got to be honest, I did think, you know, how does anyone, you know, when, when everyone is convinced you are going to be the man to, to transform everything and, and, and put Liverpool back at the top, how... How do you possibly live up to that? Mm. But you know, you, the biggest compliment you could ever pay Jurgen Klopp is he, you know, he didn't just live up to to promises and an expectation. He he surpassed it with, um, you know, a, a five an amazing five year journey of just you know almost uninterrupted progress. And um, you know, it's it's not just what he's achieved, but the manner in which he's done it. I think which makes it all the more remarkable. Yeah, and I've heard it said so many times he's the nearest thing to to Shankly, Simon. It's fascinating how Liverpool is Jurgen Klopp now and Klopp is Liverpool. He shaped the club, the, cl- the club shaped him. Yeah, well, uh, obviously last week working on this piece, I, I thought back to that, that period a lot in, in, in 2015. And I I think I just actually started at the Independence at that point. And, you know, I remember covering my first Merseyside derby for a national newspaper and walked out to the ground to find out that the manager had been sacked and, I've got to be honest. I, I I thought that Jurgen Klopp would be beyond uh, beyond Liverpool's reach for quite a long time. But over that over that period, obviously, it became clear that he really, really, really desperate. He desperately wanted the Liverpool job. And I remember speaking to people, and obviously, Liverpool met with Carlo Ancelotti. I'm sure there'll be articles this week about that, about sort of the how how Liverpool's ownership met with 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 both managers and. They really liked Ancelotti, and in another life, I would have thought that Ancelotti might be a decent manager for Liverpool in the future when Klopp leaves. Who knows? But I don't think that'll be possible now. But um, at the time, Klopp just just totally you know wowed them with his his passion and for the job and his, his knowledge of of sort of what needed to happen. And he he quite quickly really had, had, had put his his stamp on the club. I mean, you you, you listen to people around the time. And it's quite interesting because I think you have an impression of Klopp sort of goes in and sort of outlines clearly what he wants and expects everybody to sort of follow him. But actually, it was more of a sort of, you know, sort of a softer revolution in some ways. He, he clearly managed to get results quickly and, and, and get the team to two finals, which when you think about how Liverpool started that season, to get to two finals, particularly a European final, was an incredible achievement. And I think that just... Uh, allowed him at the end of that, that summer to, to to get sort of the power that probably he needed to get for, to take Liverpool in the direction that he wanted because, you know, the, the cult of the manager is relevant still. I, th- I think that Liverpool, as a football club, as a fan base, because of Shankly, looks to the manager for everything, you know, not, not just... As a, as a spokesman for the club, but a spokesman for the city as well, you know. So he he quickly established himself and it was quite clear that he was prepared to see things his own way as well. There were times when he challenged Liverpool fans on an early in, in, in early on in the relationship, and I thought that was a good sign. That it was a good sign that he he knew when to put a bit of pressure on, and he knew uh, when to step back a little bit as well. And now you know five years five years later. It's hard to think of the club being without him. Um, I mean, I, I do sometimes think about that in a few years' time if he does decide to step away, which he said. I mean, it, he, he's such a big figure. Uh, trying to replace him is, is going to be just as difficult, I would say, as as, as when Shankly was there because, um, you know, he, he's a unique character in world football and it is essentially his club now. And I, I've discussed this before on the podcast about how whether Liverpool, um, you know, all, all the things that Liverpool do well or some of the things that Liverpool do well off the pitch, I still think that it requires 
a manager of Klopp's charisma, standing and vision to um, to enable the club to be successful on the pitch, despite the structure that's offered. You still need him in control of everything. And I, I just think he's done a, an incredible job. The, the, last, uh, the last five years have just been... Nothing but you know enjoyable from a certainly from a, a writing point of view and a, and a professional point of view, but also I suppose a, a fan point of view watching watching the team play in the way that they do. Right, if each of you had to pick out a defining game uh, over the last five years, let, not Aston Villa, Steve. Not let's Aston have a Villa. look. At, you're not allowed to go to Villa Park for any reason whatsoever. Um, let's go to Kiva um, first of all. You've got five years to choose from. It can be a negative game that actually spawns something positive afterwards. But uh, what springs to mind? It, you, a lot of people will go for Barcelona, but go on, Kiva, I'll give you a blank canvas. Where do you want to go? I mean, yeah, you look and you think, you know, the Dortmund game, Barcelona, you could go to any of them, Champions League final. But I think the sort of one that sticks out in my mind is he was still sort of forging this team and, you know, where they were, where they were going and into the mentality monsters that that he then created. They were on that path, but they weren't quite there. And I think it had come after the, the Crystal Palace game um, where the fans had sort of left early. Uh, I think Liverpool lost and, you know, people started leaving Anfield. And, you know, Klopp, Klopp said after that game, you know, it was a bit of a rallying message, like, don't leave us, like, stay. You know, you need to be there to support us. And, you know, and Liverpool fans took that message on board straight away. And, you know, I think the game afterwards that that what. 2-2 draw with West Brom. I think Origi scored to take it 2-2. You know, it was a poor game. Liverpool weren't great. But at the end, obviously, they they done that sort of clasping hands, which we like to see against Barcelona and on famous nights like Dortmund as well. But, you know, they done it against West Brom. And there's that sort of famous screenshot, isn't there, from from the game. And everyone was laughing, at, you know, they're the celebrating a 2-2 draw with West Brom. And what people didn't really understand was... Klopp was thanking the fans in a very traditional way, you know, a German way, which is, you know, what happens after after wins or, or losses in, in the Bundesliga and so on in Germany. They were thanking the fans for staying behind. And from that, that little moment just sort of bonded the fans with Klopp even more. And then what follows after is sort of enabled by by that. And it was, it was sort of nice to have people laughing at Liverpool at that time because then I think, you know, Liverpool got got to laugh themselves didn't he and just think it's moments like that that would be famous for a lot of Liverpool fans just because of the I think the stick they got for it Um, that was I think a a really important moment in, in the five years Klopp's been here yeah completely agree absolutely ridiculed at the time but but who's laughing at it now James um which game would you pick up on oh do you know what one that I absolutely loved being there for, which I, th- I think sometimes gets a bit overlooked because we've, we've been treated to so many unbelievable days since, would be the 5-4 at Norwich in his in his first season. I think it was it was January time and you know, it was it was just an absolutely bonkers game of football, wasn't it? And, you know, and, and again, I suppose similar to what Kiva was saying with the, the West Brom one, you know, you look back and you think, well, is a 5-4 win at Norwich really anything to, to crow about? Just like, you know, is, is a 2-2 draw at home to West Brom that significant? But it was more what it represented in terms of just just changing that whole mindset of the team that he inherited because, you know, that was still Brendan Rodgers' team. That was the team that consistently before Klopp came in, you know, when things started to go against them in games, you know, the, the body language wasn't great, the shoulders hunched, heads dropped, you know, they thought, you know, here we go again. But... Yeah, that was that was just an absolutely 
the bonkers game of football. And, you know, I think it was uh, Basong equalising for Norwich you know, deep into stoppage time. And, you, you know, you just think, oh, my God, you know, you've come all the way to Norwich to, to concede a, a last gasp equaliser. You know, how ridiculous is that? And then, you know, go straight down the other end. Adam Lallana sticks one in and um, and just, yeah, more, more I suppose, also for, you know, the just that unity and, and spirit that you could see come to the fore with Klopp. You know, Klopp was on the pitch, you know, in those celebrations and his, you know, his, his glasses got smashed to bits as well. I think... Um, I think I think it was Sacco who was to to blame for that. I don't think I don't think that did contribute to uh, to his exit a few months later on. But um, but no, it was that was a special game, and it was all about you know showing players that this is this is what can happen if you know if 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 you keep going, if you keep fighting, this this is what we can achieve if we all stick together. Brilliant, brilliant scenes, um, Simon. You've been left with rich pickings. You've yeah. got loads of choice here now. Well, I've. Don't take the easy option. <laughs> Actually, James, I've, I've I've had a good think about this while you've been rambling on, and um, <laughs> I've, decided, <laughs> I've decided I've decided on the the three nil victory over Manchester City um, in was it January twenty eighteen? Am I right in saying? Well, you tell us, Simon. Uh, well, it's a, it's an important win that one because um, yeah, because it. it was that in the champion? I'm just trying to look back at the. Plenty of time to research blown this. Up, blowing up here. Maybe it was the league victory. <laughs> I don't know. That the league victory when Liverpool beat City, I thought was a really big one for Liverpool because in that game, uh, Virgil Van Dijk. I don't think he played in that game. If I remember correctly, uh, that's right. They, yeah, they, they just sold Coutinho, and. I think they needed to have a big win against obviously top top quality opposition, and until that point, Man City, I, I think they were they were unbeaten in in the league season. So they sort of they obviously shattered this sense of invincibility in City. They got a big win themselves earlier that season. They'd lost to City. They'd, they'd taken a bit of a pace and then lost to Tottenham. And it sort of felt like a moment in Klopp's reign where. It could go one way or the other, you know. I think they needed to sort of, they had, they had obviously the first season of progression. The second season, they got back in the Champions League. They needed to show they could go a bit further in, in the cup competitions and push on. And obviously, they exceeded expectations by getting to the Champions League final that season. But it was the first really big, big convincing win that they had over, over a major rival. And obviously, that the, the, that that sort of competition between Liverpool and City. Evolve. I think from that point, uh, Liverpool seemed like the, a team that could really uh, give City problems, and obviously then beat them in in the, in the second leg in the in the Champions League and in very testing circumstances as well. I'd say that was on a par with it when I'll never forget that that second half, the first half of the Etihad when City absolutely bombarded Liverpool. It was excruciating, forty-five minutes, but they managed to get through it. I just think those two games were were very big for Klopp. You know, they, they managed to. The other the other games that have been spoken about are more of a, from a psychological point of view in the early days. I think this was a a real turn and point to turn them into into winners, and uh, yeah yeah great memories, good choices. Uh, let's hope we've got many more years of games to to choose from. Right, this is the Red Agenda. Let's preview this weekend's Merseyside derby. Everton top of the Premier League table. Does this one feel different in any way? As Everton's revival given the game a different edge, James. Does it feel different? Yeah, yeah, I think it. I think it does. I think um, certainly Everton 
command a lot more respect, I think, this time around than, you know, in, in terms of being wary about what they could potentially do to you. I think the intriguing thing for me will be how Ancelotti does approach it. I think he's, he's been pretty cautious in the in the derby games so far and, um, you know, will will he be a bit more expansive? Will he will he see Liverpool as you know as as a bit vulnerable and 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 there to be got at on the back of what happened at at Villa Park? Um, and yeah, I think you know when, whenever you, you suffer such a chastening experience like Liverpool did at Villa Park, you know in, in the back of your mind you are wondering how how they're going to respond to that because it was so out of keeping with everything we've seen from from this team over the last few years. Um, and then you know, I think the other, the other massive variable you have to throw into the mix is, you know, the ridiculous preparation pretty much for both teams going into this derby because it isn't like a normal one. You know, it's I was looking before, you know, Brazil play in the early hours of of Wednesday morning UK time. You know, so you've got obviously Richarlison for Everton, you've got Fabinho and Firmino involved in that. So you're talking about probably deep into Thursday before. You know they're they're back on Merseyside. Of course, you have got the the COVID situation as well, with you know um, Naby Keita being the the latest Liverpool player to to test positive. So um, it's yeah, I, I, you know, and and then you know the early kickoff as well. I don't think that particularly suits either team. Um, with you know when when you when you're only really you know both managers getting their squads back so late in the week. So um, yeah, it's, I think it's a really difficult game to try and predict. Okay, um, Kiva, let's go to yourself. I've been thinking back to my favourite derbies and they all revolve around not just the players or the goals, but the atmosphere. And obviously there's no fans here. How much does this lack of supporters in this one-off fixture change the landscape of this derby? Yeah, I think it does. And it has, you know, we've been thinking about that for a while now and especially, you know, with these new lockdown regulations which look to be coming into Liverpool as a city region and think that sort of takes it out of us as well obviously no pubs or anything like that um or it will be open so it just it, you know it takes us right back to the to the derby at Goodison Park at the end of last season again um it's not what we want is it we were all building up for that big derby where Liverpool you know could have won the league and stuff like that and then obviously you know now we're here again and it, the joy from football has, has been taken away from the fans it's not the same as it watching it on TV at all I think you know even you'd love a a full full house at Goodison Park you know even Red and Everton on because I think you know that's what you where you want to play football isn't it in stadiums full of passionate fans um, and Goodison Park on its day is you know one of the best around I just think you know it's a real shame looking at it in, in that way but you know it's an exciting time for fans across Merseyside you know we haven't had Liverpool and Everton sort of battling out for a league title since the 80s and you know if Everton keep on going the way they are that could well be the case you know everyone sort of said this is a crazy season it could be a Leicester season you don't know that just yet but I think you know it's, it's very important for Liverpool to to get something out of this game I don't necessarily think a draw is even a bad thing away at Goodison Park but with draws haven't come there a lot when when Klopp needed a win in the past couple of seasons I think you know they've got to right that wrong and you know and go and get a win but as James mentioned obviously there'll be fatigue as well after the international break which you expect so it's it's going to be a really interesting game um, to watch and you know Everton have been playing some great football obviously Liverpool are coming off the back of that horrific defeat they need to put things right and for a couple of days after that defeat you know fans would have felt so down and 
a little bit worried about the Everton game, I think. You know, there was that little sense of, hang on, you know, they could go 15 points and clear to Liverpool for another week. And I just think Liverpool need to start, you know, get things back up and running. And, you know, with a win there, I think it does that, doesn't it? You know, then they'd be, they'd be level on points of Everton and just sort of, you know, going into the Champions League the next week, just bouncing off what would be a really, probably, you know, really important victory come the end of the season, I think, and in particular, having drawn there in the past couple of seasons when we needed a win. So it's easy to say Liverpool obviously losing 7-2 to Villa that, you know, maybe there's a, f- a few cracks have been exposed, but we know the sort of character that's in the side. I, d- I just want to say, which side is happier that this derby is up next. You're not telling me that Everton are just delighted because they're top of the league. There's a there's a slight worry from them as well, isn't there? When you listen to players, you get the impression that the first game back after international break is not a game that they particularly look look forward to in the same way. Just merely because the you know the players aren't there for the whole week and able to prepare for the whole week. It's a different sort of prep- preparation. You're sort of thrown into the game. Um, and it often results in, in in some sort of chaotic performances and scores as, as, a, as a result. So, okay, yeah, there's, there's going to be that build-up, I suppose, in the city and people talking about it. But for the players' point of view, it's going to be thrust upon them. Um, I can't quite figure out whether it's a good thing that Liverpool's players have been able to get away or, or and, and, and sort of focus on something else or have... You know, go, go back into game mode straight after. What happens if Villa? Um, it could go either way, really. I think Everton wouldn't have wanted any international break because of the momentum that they've created in, in, in not not just the results but the performances as well. Because they've they've obviously found a bit of a bit of a rhythm there. So it'll be interesting to see whether that's disrupted or not. I mean, a lot of it. James Hutcher at the beginning. It is going to be fascinating to see what Ancelotti tries because. He's had a lot of joy against Liverpool over the last couple of years as Napoli manager, and well, I suppose in, in the, the post-lockdown match when he when he when he went to Everton. I know he's he's, he's always he had had a bad moment in charge of Everton in the FA Cup match, which I, I think has more or less been forgotten for, for some strange reason. But um, yeah, I, I think I think it's I actually don't think it's a, a bad match for Liverpool to go back into because they can't afford to. Not that I'm saying that they would take it easy because it's not really in the nature, but they're really going to have to be on it, this one. Because you, you, no player wants to be involved in the team that loses for, to Everton for the first time in a decade. You know, it's 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 a, it's a really, really big game for this team. And if you, if, you, if, you, if you look back at Liverpool performances throughout history, when, when you sort of judge where Liverpool are at, Liverpool as a team have had bad defeats. People talked about Villa, obviously... Villa 7-2 is a terrible, terrible result. But, they, you know, they lost five to Villa in, in the 70s. That was discussed in, in the actual match itself. It's about how you react to that defeat. And I think it says a lot more about how a team reacts than than, than necessarily how it, the results that it has in, in one-off situations. So it's a great opportunity for Liverpool. Liverpool should be... If Liverpool go and beat Everton, what happens at Villa Park will be forgotten about quite quickly from the players' point of view. I'm sure managers will be looking at what the ways Villa had success against Liverpool. But if they came back and, and, and beat Everton and beat Everton well with a good performance, suddenly the discussion, you know, veers away from Liverpool and they're back on track again. Some players are receiving more of the spotlight than others in terms of their game. Um, we'll get to Joe Gomez in a second, but Adrian, for some fans. 
is a cause for concern. Now, clearly that defeat at Villa wasn't all about him. He made a mistake for the first one. You can point fingers at other parts of the game to other members of the team. But there's a prolonged period where he's going to be involved where Alisson's missing. What's your perspective on Adrian and whether Liverpool were actually looking at bringing in another goalkeeper, James? Yeah, you're right. There has been a big a big spotlight on him, I think. Not, not just as a result of... Of, of what happened at Villa Park, but I think also because of the way in which his, you know, this last season finished for him on a personal level, because, you know, there were those high profile mistakes against Chelsea and Atletico Madrid that, that, that led to Liverpool's exit from the FA Cup and the Champions League. So, um, yeah, and, and, and not great for him to have two weeks to, to stew on what happened at, at Villa Park, I'm sure. But yeah, he, there was, for, I, think, I think there was always bound to be speculation um, because of the domestic window still being open, um, people put two and two together and get seventeen and and decide that Liverpool are definitely gonna gonna go out and sign another keeper. But Liverpool just don't. It, it would be you know, one of the most un-Liverpool like things imaginable, really, for a club that prides itself on long term thinking and and not going down the route of knee jerk reactions. Um, you know, I had to laugh when I saw headlines at the weekend about Jack Butland and you think you know we're talking about a goalkeeper that can't even get in Stoke City's team um so the idea that Liverpool are going to suddenly go and and spend money to bring him in would be just nonsensical so um so yeah you know there, there is pressure on Adrian but you know I know for a fact he was back at Melwood the day after what happened at Villa Park working with John Acterberg you know knuckling down desperate to to learn from what he'd done wrong and and knowing that he'll have the opportunity to put things right at, at Goodison. I think, talk about the absence of fans, I think it probably helps Adrian no fans because I think when, when you've made a mistake like that going into a game as big as Everton away, you know, I, th- I think the Everton fans inevitably would have been on, it, on his case from, from the absolute word go on Saturday and, um, you know, he won't have that, um, which I think should help him but um you know people will debate whether should Liverpool should have gone and and signed a you know a, a better number 2 if you want in the summer but i i just think you know Liverpool had much bigger priorities to address in the window and it is a difficult thing i think that the the other thing i think you have to factor in when you talk about getting number 2 is a, a number 2 that comes to Liverpool knows that they're going to be you know they're they're not going to play unless unless there there's an injury because you're effectively coming in at, you know to to try and compete with the best goalkeeper in world football and so it's not like going to most clubs where you might go in and think you know I've got half a chance of getting past this fella um so that immediately reduces your options in terms of who you can who you can and can't sign and um yeah Adrian's had a a rough time of it but you know I I do have some sympathy for him because Let's not forget until Villa Park, you know. I think he played in eleven Premier League games for Liverpool, and they'd and they'd won all won all of them. Uh, and the former Joe Gomez Kiva, does he need taken out of the firing line? Would Fabinho work just as well at, at centre back, given there's loads of strong options in midfield? I think for the Villa game, a half time Fabinho should have probably that should have been the change clock made. But moving forward, I don't know. You know, he's played for England now, as an easel competent in in those. In those games he's featured in, um, you know, he's a player who's going to play a lot of games to Liverpool. You know, he's still a young centre half, and games, it, you know, it wasn't just his fault what happened at Villa Park. You know, he, he had a bad performance, but 
I think the whole the whole team did pretty much. Um, you know, wouldn't be surprised for Klopp to to put him right back in there. As Simon mentioned, I think it's probably good that they have almost got away and just sort of, you know, they've played games and sort of this game wasn't the last game for, for a lot of the players, which is probably a good thing. Um, it was the last game as a team, obviously, but Joe Gomez is a superbly talented defender and, you know, he's what he's done for Liverpool in the last couple of years has, has been remarkable. Um, Fabinho done a job against Chelsea and I'm sure he could do one against Everton, but then what does that do for Joe Gomez's confidence throughout the season? Does it then, he always think, well, if I have if I have a bad game, I'm going to be replaced by a midfielder who obviously we know Fabinho could play there because he's played there in the past and obviously I think he played right back in his career and stuff. So, you know, we know he can fill in for anyone if the, if they're injured, that's the sort of feeling. But if they're not playing well and he's filling in for them, then I'm not sure what that does sort of for, you know, his mentality and what happens then for the rest of the season. So I think the best thing for Klopp to do would just be to put Gomez back in. Keep him going. Right, let's just finish on this this conversation that always arises out of a derby about some sort of mixed team. <laughs> so, how many Everton players, given their top of the league, make it into the Liverpool side? Oh, nice one. Si, an easy one. <laughs> let's throw it Let's throw it to you. Lorca Richarlison's uh, been playing well. Dominic Calvert-Lewin's nice. the top goal scorer. James Rodriguez is pretty effective. Which Everton players make it into a Liverpool team? So, are we talking about form or just quality? <laughs> no, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's difficult yeah, to gauge, isn't well, it? Just give me an, ele- an, an 11 for where we're at at the moment. Uh, am I allowed to choose Alisson or is he, is he out? He's injured. Well, he's injured, isn't he? He can't well, play this week. going to be struggling, aren't we? I, I genuinely couldn't choose a goalkeeper between them. <laughs> Just play without one. Yeah. So, so no goalie then. Uh, no goalie. <laughs> no right. goalie. So you've got to have Trent, you've got to have Trent right back, and you've got to have Robertson left back. Yeah. Um, Van Dijk centre half. Even being on, I think I think Everton. I think I haven't got right to try and sign another centre half because I'm still not overly convinced by by Keane and Amina. Um but Joe Gomez is having a bit of a rough time so I suppose we best put one of those two players in. Mm. Um Michael Michael I think Michael Keane plays better when he's got a dominant centre half alongside him but I think anybody could play alongside Virgil van Dijk so let's just put Keane in for the time being. Um you got to have Robertson yeah, Robertson's in, yeah. Robertson's in. Oh, yeah, I thought... Right, I thought yeah, you Rob, Robertson's in. Right. Uh, so, Robertson ahead of Dinya. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, I, I really like... Midfield, James, you, you, go on, let James on, do the James, midfield. Yeah, go on, you, you take over, James. <laughs> mm. um, well, clearly, Thiago, I think he, um, he, he was all over Instagram yesterday, so he's no longer self-isolating so he should be okay he, you, you have him in there you have you've, you've got to have football writers footballer of the year Jordan Henderson um, and then I think I'm not sure I'm not sure I have an Everton midfielder in the, in this team what who do they right. what, who do Alan, they have Sigurd Alan Sigurdsson? Alan is in with the shouts I think he's injured though isn't he of course he's injured as well well yeah I don't know what you do with it then yeah um, who, who else do they? Oh, Decore. Yeah. Do we have him or not? Played well, but you're not sure whether he, he shuffles it. Kiva, do you put Decore in? I'm not too sure. I was just looking at Everton's midfield. Okay. Uh, the, you know, I think Alan's the one, isn't he? But obviously he's not fit, so you don't necessarily whether you'd. you'd I mean, James Rodriguez, I know he's been playing more forward, but whether you drop him in 
that little creative sort of role. I don't know. All right, nah. so Thiago Henderson, Fabinho. Yeah, yeah. Or Fabinho. Yeah. Um, so far, you've only ch- you've chosen no goalkeeper. Uh, <laughs> Michael Keane somehow squeezed in. So, is there an Everton player in your front three? Well, Roberto Firmino's had a little bit of a question yeah. mark yeah. recently. You, you've got to, you've got to have Calvert Lewin in there on form. You'd, you'd, he's clearly not in terms of what they've achieved in the game and long longevity and and sheer quality. But yeah, I think I think even I'd have to admit you'd have. Calvert-Lewin ahead of Firmino on form at the moment and that's your completely unbiased <laughs> Liverpool Everton 11 <laughs> so you didn't want to add anything a footnote there did you to the not really this, well, no I, okay if, if it's only on form then you've got to put right. Rodriguez in there somewhere yeah um, he's outstanding you, you've got to but I, I'm not too sure where because Salah's been playing so well and obviously before he missed the uh, the Villa game Mane you know was, was bang up for it as well so it's it's difficult. I mean, they do have players, and Everton do have players who are on form. It, it, it's you know they have been playing some really good football. You've got to give credit where it's due. Right, looking forward to this Merseyside derby, and of course next week on the Red Agenda we'll reflect on it um, with the guys. So thanks to uh, Kiva, Simon, and James, and the Red Agenda's back in a week's time. Mm-hmm.